Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am in traffic-clogged New York City, where the United Nations General Assembly is getting underway. Smarter than me by far is uh, Rosa Brooks, who when last we left her was sitting in a Adirondack <laughs> chair overlooking the eastern shore of Maryland, and she's probably still there for all that we know since we recorded that episode a minute ago. But um, that's where you are, right, Rosa? That's where I am, David. It's Rosa, her dog, and if you missed the last episode, geese. And I thought, yes. Rosa, her dog, and geese. Um, <laughs> now in Washington, D.C., running around from one monument to another, apparently, we have Corey Shockey um, soaking in all that is uh, good and inspiring in Washington. So she'll be there for about 15 minutes, I think. But um, <laughs> Welcome, Corey. Thank you, David. And we have at the Center for American Progress, where he is also the host of the Asset podcast, um, Max Bergman. Hi, Max. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, we're glad to have you here. I would thought we would turn our attention a little bit to what's going on in New York City this week. Uh, the United States, the United Nations General Assembly um, uh, began its, its uh, sort of um, uh, annual uh, series of meetings and uh, side meetings and cocktail parties and traffic jams. Uh, it's horrible. And uh, the first thing I said was, I am not going anywhere near the east side, uh, but then I have to go to a bunch of those kind of things. So I'm, I'll be leaving <laughs> as soon as this episode is done and <laughs> go straight into a traffic jam. Um, but, the, but it began, you know, the UN began in a kind of what I consider to be a rather uplifting note, where uh, Greta Thunberg, who is this, uh, or Thunberg, who is this uh, Norwegian 16-year-old, uh, spoke at a climate action summit um, in which she said, you know, you have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. You are still not mature enough to tell it like it is. You are failing us. Young people are starting to understand your betrayal, the eyes of all future generations are upon you, and more of this. She was very strong, very inspiring, and spoke absolute truth throughout this um, uh, uh, presentation that she made. Um, and this is in counterpoint to the president of the United States and the vice president, um, uh, who spent 10 minutes at the climate summit and walked out because it wasn't important enough for them. Uh, and uh, there was a great shot, if you can go and find it or Google it, of them exiting with Greta 
um, staring at them, daggers, very utter, utter disgust and contempt. And she is a tiny young woman, and he is a very big guy, but it is very clear that she is much larger figure uh, than he is and also gets the biggest issue that we face. Um, and, you know, I, I have to say, um, perhaps I can start with you, Corey, but my sense is that while we talk a lot about um, um, political crimes of Donald Trump, or we talk a lot about uh, some of the national security issues that you know garner the headlines near wars and so forth. The the systematic repeal of regulations on the environment, the rejection of climate science. Um, that I mean, you know, they, they, they passed a, a, a regulatory change in the past couple of days that allows you know uh, manufacturers to dump poisonous chemicals back in rivers. Um, is 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 on sort of the par of a of kind of a crime against humanity. We don't witness it so much. It's not we're not seeing it. It doesn't. We don't talk about you know uh, the political crisis around it. Um, but this young woman seems to be right to me, and the president of the United States is grotesquely wrong. And and it's going to take. I don't. I don't even know if we can fix what, the, what he is breaking. Uh, and that seems to me to be a very big national security issue and um, just, a, frankly, a human rights issue that a, one person can be in a position to do so much damage. But I'm interested in what you think. Oh, as you know, I am not an expert on climate science. Uh, it does seem to me, though, that... Uh, Two things are going on. The first is that um, the, we are seeing the refutation of H.R. Uh, McMaster and Nadia Shadlow and Jim Mattis's belief that America first doesn't mean America alone, right? Because every other government uh, is scrambling to try and find useful, constructive ways to manage an enormous global challenge and the aggressive disrespect that the president and the rest of the administration bring to this really is isolating the United States from other countries, even though, as Antonio Guterres announced uh, about eight months ago, the United States is going to be the first government to meet its Paris Climate Accord goals, even though uh, even with the regulatory rollback that David described, even with the president's overt hostility, that fortunately the president doesn't hold all the power in the country and state governments that are fighting the president over uh, auto emissions and uh, Mike Bloomberg infusing an enormous amount of cash into it. I think it's really valuable to remember that uh, the president's behavior isn't the entirety of the country's behavior and all of us can make individual choices and we can make local and state choices that uh, abet the damage that the president's approach is bringing. So Max, you've been spending a lot of time sort of studying the Russian uh, 
a plot to help Trump. And, um, you know, when you refer to Trump as an asset, the question becomes, how do you value that asset? And, and, you know, I don't think that it's, you know, valued in a traditional way. I think it's valued in a way of undermining American leadership. And I saw some commentaries about Trump walking out of the climate meeting or Trump going over and going and doing a meeting on uh, on religious freedom, which, of course, is rich with certain ironies given his views towards Muslims, um, that, that we have gotten to the point where world leaders simply roll their eyes, where the president of the United States has no moral authority. He's got virtually no standing with these other leaders. Um, and that seems to me to be the, you know, a way in which this asset would be val valued very highly by um, Russian sponsors. It's very disruptive and destructive. What, what's your view on that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, one of the the objectives, large objectives, I think, of Vladimir Putin, of the Kremlin, uh, is to undermine American uh, America's global leadership, American moral authority. And nothing does that more than walking out of a climate change summit of snubbing your nose at a, at a you know, a 16-year-old who is galvanizing the world um, and making America sort of join forces with, I think we're, Syria was the only other country, Syria and Nicaragua, but I think Nicaragua came in compliance of the Paris Climate Treaty, but, but but clearly isolating ourselves. And I think this is where, you know, as Corey mentioned, we're kind of America alone, um, where we're not, you know, uh, you know, under Trump seen as uh, as uh, you know, sort of destroying the sort of moral of uh, um, any any sort of uh, moral authority that the United States would have. But I think Corey's point about how, you know, you know, the United States has sort of continued on in, in, in a lot of changes happening. A lot of those were put in place during the Obama administration, even going back early on to the stimulus uh, measures that were put in place to, you know, revive clean energy. But I think one of the things that is, uh, you know, one benefit, and, I, you know, this may be a, uh, hard to see any benefit of Donald Trump, is that I think it's been galvanizing for people here in the United States of the importance of taking real action on climate change, on make, moving it up the kind of uh, list of priorities. And so if Donald Trump is removed and replaced in 2021, I think there's no doubt that this will be you know, top of the agenda or the top issue for an incoming Democratic administration. And then when we think about how you know, Europe and China are sort of positioning themselves. I mean, China is sort of uh, making a lot of inroads into uh, uh, climate change technology, as is Europe. But I think one sort of broader thing to think about when it comes to transatlantic relations is the rise of anti-Americanism uh, and the growing uh, uh, awareness of, of the importance of climate policy in Europe has made America, America's position make made America even more toxic. So then support within Europe for aligning with the United States versus aligning with China. Well, China is taking action on climate change while the United States isn't. So I think we're, um, you know, I think the question is, can we get through the next year and a half uh, and then, you know, a new administration sort of 
has to be able to put their money where their mouth is. And so aren't just going to be able to come back and say, well, we're back, we're rejoining Paris. But I think we'll actually have to do something very significant in the climate space to rebuild any sort of moral authority broadly, um, uh, which is necessary for sort of rebuilding American leadership more broadly. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we're going to have to do a couple of things to send a strong message that things have changed in a, in a, in a, in a, fu in a fundamental way. But, you know, meetings like this UN meeting, Rosa, give the opportunity to a guy like Trump to do a lot of damage. And uh, it's, you know, it's difficult to project two to three days ahead in this world. But, you know, the, the odds of him accidentally running into the Iranian president at this meeting and saying, hey, let's sit down and have a talk or... You know, he 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 sort of freelances at these kind of meetings and comes up with statements, some of which are crazy. He met with the president of Pakistan and explained to him that he would have won multiple Nobel prizes if he had not, you know, if the if the press and the Democrats had not, you know, been so unfair to him. Um, he also began, I think, that session by saying something to the effect of, "When I took over America," um, which was kind of beautiful. Um, but there's a lot of damage that he can, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, he's pretty fantastic. There's a lot of damage he's likely to do in settings like this. Um, and I, you know, I'm just, I just, when you look at a, look, look at a week, what, what do you sort of fear out of the president? Uh, I don't know. I don't think he's he's going to do any more damage there than he's capable of doing, um, you know, alone in his bedroom with his iPhone and, and his Twitter account. Um, I, I mean, typically, as, as you know, at least historically, uh, these kinds of affairs are incredibly tightly managed by presidential staff that the president is not just, you know, hanging around in the in the cafeteria in the U.N. building. Uh, where he might accidentally, you know, run into the Iranian president. Um, there are, you know, there's a small army of staff aides who are making absolutely sure that no accidental meetings that could be embarrassing are ever going to occur. Uh, admittedly, in the, the, the Trump, the total dysfunction of the Trump White House uh, uh, and the apparent inability even of Trump's own staff or inability or lack of desire, uh, not sure which, to to control him, um, means that maybe Donald Trump does just you know hang out in the in the you know <laughs> in the lobby at the UN just waiting to see who wanders by so he can make a little bit of trouble. Um, but I, I I still I doubt it. I you know I think I I think that Trump's Yes. Could, could he could he say embarrassing things to and about foreign leaders over the course of the U.N. General Assembly meeting? You bet he could. Um, is it any more likely that he'll say them because he happens to be in New York as opposed to happens to be alone with his Twitter account? Not really. Um, so I'm, I'm worried, but I'm not any more worried than than usual, if that if that helps. Well, then that's really if we can shift our focus elsewhere. Corey, as you're like jogging around DC, presumably the people who know you know that you're living in the UK now. Are you getting inundated with questions like what the hell is happening in the UK now? <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed I am. In fact, I wish I could just 
uh, had just carried a recording of Ed Luce here on Deep State Radio explaining the state of play in Britain so that I didn't have to. Uh, the two most often questions I get are, um, uh, is, are British politics as uh, much of a disaster as American politics are at the moment? And the answer to that question is yes. Um, and But the uh, second thing is there is occasionally a certain amount of wistfulness uh, about the, uh, the fact that any idiot can run for president and very often does in the United States because the chokehold that the Eaton boys, or I should say the Oxford and Cambridge boys, have on the, the Tory party and that Jeremy Corbyn has on the Labor Party are preventing the kind of um, the kind of entrepreneurial experimentation that we're seeing in the Democratic primary for presidency, and that we begin to see with Mark Sanford coming in to primary the president along with Bill Weld and Carly Fiorina beginning to make noises. Um, there is and I sure hope it proves true, a certain belief that the American system is more amenable to self-correction than the British system. And I don't know that that's true, but I sure hope that it's true for the sake of our sweet provincial country. You know, Max, you don't go out and sort of sell yourself as a, you know, pure, you know, pure political analyst, but you know, one of the things that strikes me is you've looked at how easily our system could be gamed um, and how political parties are willing to sort of go along with anything to increase their advantage. Is that just like France was a couple of years ago, where both of the top two political parties were kind of so out of touch that they opened the door for Macron to come through with something new, that in the UK, Labour and the Conservatives and in the US, Certainly the Republicans, but you might argue also the Democrats and some of their leaders um, are just sort of losing touch with the reality of the moment in which we live. And I you just sort of wonder if we're at one of those watershed moments where we need to hit reset. I mean, there are other countries going through this as well, you know, that are that are that are the the political system just doesn't seem to be working with it within the social reality of the moment. And I'm just I'm just wondering if you think we've we may be coming to a point of inflection there. Yeah, I think there is a bit of a political paradigm shift. And I actually think, you know, looking at Europe is is a good good place to look. And it's not simply the UK. But, you know, there's been, you know, Europe, European politics has been fairly consensual. You know, you had sort of center-right and center-left parties. And they would sort of vary back and forth. But they all sort of generally agreed on, for instance, the European Union, Europeanization, and European integration. Um, were pro transatlantic. There was sort of not much space on the on sort of the far right and far left. And when they sort of emerged, there was quickly an ability in those parliamentary proportional representation systems to sort of, you know, elbow them out. And what we're seeing, you know, is there was a poll recently in a prominent German state where the Green Party was just, you know, surging ahead. The SPD, the the common sort of center left party that has been there for a lot, you know, been sort of the prominent opposition was under 10 percent. Merkel's party, the CDU, was sort of declining. And I think what we're seeing is a bit of the disaggregation of of politics that we're sort of pivoting to a new era. And I think we see that 
internal divide within the Democratic Party right now in the with the fight over impeachment that we talked about in the previous episode, that there's you know one grouping which says, well, OK, and this is sort of the triangulation element of American politics where, well, we need to get to the 51st vote. We need to appeal to not our base, but to that you know suburban independent person and get them. And so we need to sort of move to the center. And then there's the other side that says, well, when you move to the center, you move so far away, you, you, you know, you, you sound like you don't stand for anything and you don't mobilize people. And so we see that sort of split emerging within the democratic party. And, and I think we're, I think we're sort of, in my view, on the cusp of a, of a new era where politics has become a bit more partisan in Europe as well is, I mean, more partisan, obviously in the United States, but also in Europe. And to me, you know, I am not sure that a more, you know, progressive position will not appeal to people who we think are diehard Trump supporters. And so I think, you know, the, the political lines that had sort of dominated post-World War II politics, I think have really sort of faded. And I think we're in this weird, awkward moment of transition. You could point to the 1930s. Hopefully it's not that, but where something where we're experiencing a lot of change, technological change, cultural change, and that's leading to political change as well. And so I think candidates that tap into that, uh, the green party in Germany or, or a lot of certain progressive democratic candidates are, are doing that as well. So I, I think, I think we are in this sort of shifting dynamic and Trump encapsulated that as well with his victory, you know, and take over the Republican party in 2016. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true, Rosa. You know, if I were going to try to encapsulate one of the core changes, I would say the word visibility has been replaced by the word virality or alternatively, virality is the key metric of visibility. So if something doesn't go viral, does not get spread in social media, does not get spread virally among even mainstream media outlets, but because that's how they pick things up, it doesn't exist. And virality has certain kinds of requirements. It needs to be brief. It needs to be uh, get your adrenaline going a little bit. It needs to have an emotional effect on you more so than an intellectual effect on you. Um, and that politics is being increasingly driven, it seems, by extreme views. But in part, that's because those work better in our system. And um, I'm wondering if you know you see this as the end of the world. <laughs> no, I mean, I think this has always been true. And, and, and I do think that we sometimes tend to have to sort of romanticize earlier eras. Um, you know, we say, oh, you know, once upon a time, everyone watched Walter Cronkite at night and was civil to one another and read the newspaper. Um, but go back and, and, and here I'll defer to Corey, who may want to correct me on details. Go back to, for instance, the early American Republic. And newspapers were not viewed as, you know, the, the res highly respectable gray lady type outlets, but were, were viewed as partisan vehicles of particular political parties, candidates, commercial interests, etc. Um, the literacy rates were lower. 
uh, the types of stuff that would appear in in pamphlets and uh, handouts, sort of distrib run off on cheap printing presses and distributed on the on the streets, were every bit as inflammatory and often completely false as the sort of viral fake news tweets that we decry today. So, so in, in that sense, I don't think there is something. There, I don't think there's anything at all new. In fact, again, I'll, I'll defer to Corey, who I'm sure will have good examples. You know, you can you can look at uh, uh, historians writing in journals from ancient Rome and ancient China and find com people complaining about the fact that nobody pays any attention to anything except the scurrilous rumors and it's not true and it's oversimplified and it's very unfair. So I think Rosa, as usual, is exactly right. Um, the only thing I would add to it is just to emphasize my mystification that when that um, the right has been faster to adapt to this than the left, given that almost the entire technological glitterati of the country uh, votes Democrat, and and yet somehow conservatives manage to adapt faster. It seems to be a very weird thing. So I wonder I have whether a theory about that. It's not original to me, uh, but the reason that the right in the United States has been more effective at using these technologies, even though they were largely created by sort of more liberal, uh, young liberal cosmopolitan elites, um, is the same reason that Al-Qaeda and then subsequently ISIS uh, have run rings around the United States when it comes to social media, that that insurgent groups and and uh, groups with no power, this is, this is called asymmetric warfare, if you will, right? That if you have power, you have no particular incentive to get creative uh, and do the unexpected and be outrageous. Um, if you are trying to gain power, uh, then you do. And and the the Trump the Trumpian wing of the right, the 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 Bannons, the alt-right stuff, you know, that these are essentially cultural insurgent groups. Um, some of them seem perfectly eager to transition from cultural insurgency to actual violent insurgency. Um, but most of them have simply been cultural insurgencies. And, you know, that's, that's what small insurgent groups do. They, they use asymmetrical action and they, they take elites by surprise. Going to add something now following up on that, Corey? No, I just want to say it's persuasive. Well, it is persuasive. I thought you were going to come back immediately with the story of Thomas Jefferson hiring <laughs> a journalist on the salary of the State Department to put out a newspaper to support him um, while Alexander um, Hamilton had done the exact same thing at Treasury. It started in the first days of our, our republic. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Bravo, David, for throwing that one in there. Um, well, I just always know that this is the way to impress you with my knowledge. Absolutely of, true. Of our the way to impress me. Of Arcana. Well, exactly. Um, so, Max, you know, one of the things that colors all of this is, is, you know, what I was getting at earlier is that the sort of information landscape has changed. And as we move into an era where there's AI and deep fakery and so forth, the ability of foreign actors, malevolent actors, non-human actors to participate in this is dramatically different 
from what it was back in the day that Rosa is talking about. Um, so, I mean, that seems to me to be a qualitative difference in the nature of our politics, and it's only likely to get worse. What what led to Trump 2016 is is just prelude. Yeah, you know, in so, I, I totally agree with that, but I think in so, there is a, a slight case for optimism. And, um, you know, I, I often go back to a tweet that was done by a guy named Daniel Kibblesmith, who was a writer for The Colbert Show. And it went something like, uh, you know, in 1996, your mom says, don't trust anyone on the Internet. And in 2016, your mom, did you know that Hillary Clinton invented AIDS, according to Facebook.NewYorkTimes.net.com? You know, in other words, that, you know, we were sort of a very vulnerable uh, population in 2016. We hadn't really ever heard of foreign uh, interference in elections. It wasn't a concept. It wasn't something that was widely discussed as a potential factor in any election. Uh, the idea of being sort of uh, manipulated through propaganda directed at you online was, you know, we were more focused on, you know, the U.S. government through, you know, Snowden and others monitoring people. There wasn't the sense that we were uh, prone to sort of manipulation. And and I, I have to say, I think there's been a we you know, we, there's been a degree of just awareness of, of uh, increasing literacy that, oh, this is a thing that actually occurs. It's not something that, you know, in if in 2016, the press just didn't understand what was happening. They you know sort of dismissed any claims that this was occurring. And the social media companies, you know, were completely complicit. And now, you know, I think there, there's going to be a degree of complicity, but they're, you know, at least going to be aware of what's happening and are going to be monitoring it in 2020. All of that said, we should be absolutely terrified um, because foreign actors, foreign intelligence services has have also seen the president, have also seen how he acts, how he responds. And. There's countries like Saudi Arabia, like Russia, that have a huge interest in Donald Trump winning re-election. And suddenly the, there's a green light from the president of the United States to interfere. And that could be in any number of any number of ways. Um, and I, th I think, you know, there could be a ransomware attack. There could be, uh, a, you know, efforts to infiltrate Democratic, you know, Democratic candidates and then pose as, you know, the, as a foreign actor to try to sort of set them up to show that both sides uh, are, are colluding. You know, there's all different sorts of ways that highly trained, highly skilled foreign intelligence services with lots of resources can impact a democratic political process. Um, and so I think it's beyond sort of the online manipulate online space. I think that's really worrisome. We're not quite sure how that will come, but I think there's all different other sectors as well in terms of, you know, election security and cyber uh, as well as simply old school intelligence techniques that could be used in 2020. So we're we're entirely vulnerable, but I hope we've developed a degree of resilience just having gone through uh, you know the Russia investigation over the last few years. Well, that would entail that we'd we'd learned something from it. <laughs> um, and you know, I'm not sure I'm not sure that there's a lot of uh, evidence to that to that effect. Um, one of the things that we we note at, at things like the UN is is who's not there, uh, and this week Rosa not there is uh, Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, 
who's at home trying to keep his job because his politics seem to have changed somewhat. Um, and uh, for the first time in, in, in the history or the second time in the history of that country, uh, the Arab political parties have sided publicly with one of the leading Israeli politicians, um, uh, in this case, Benny Gantz, to, to try to push Netanyahu out of office. Uh, and of course, Netanyahu wants to stay in office by hook or by crook, um, be, because he's a crook, and because he's going to get indicted if he doesn't. Um, and I'm just, you know, wondering, to, you know, to what extent you would think the machinations we're seeing in Israel as he sort of tries to game the system and and avoid um, the reckoning that would come if he was out of office may be a prelude to what we're going to see in the U.S. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Uh, I think seeing uh, Netanyahu in in jail um, would be would be a a happy thing. It would fill me with warm fuzzy feelings. And um, uh, I can think of not only in our country Donald Trump, but in several other countries, a few other leaders who would look really good behind bars and in prison uniforms. Um, so so yeah, you know, you never know. Um, I, you know, I do think that the, the there was there was a there was an interesting. Um, op-ed, uh, I think, in today's New York Times, and I'll see if I can pull it up so I can I can give appropriate credit, credit to the person who actually wrote it. Um, um, maybe one of you remembers. It was about uh, Israel and the likely impact of uh, a Netanyahu departure on the relationship between American Jews and Israel. Um, does anybody remember who wrote it? Because for some reason, I'm not finding it, easily at least. Um, um, but in any case, it, it, it Daniel, made a point Daniel, I think is a really, I'm, I'm sorry, Daniel Gordis. Oh yes. Thank you. Okay. That sounds right. Um, you know, it, it made, it made a very important point, which was that not a lot of people in the American Jewish community, as, as far as I can tell, are particularly fond of, of Netanyahu. The American Jewish community overall is a fairly liberal uh, group of people in terms of politics, not a lot of Trump supporters in there, a lot of uh, uh, unhappiness with the uh, high hand, with not only with Netanyahu's sort of personal failings, corruption, et cetera, but also with the sort of increasingly hardline um, approach to uh, both the Arab community within Israel and, and to Palestinians that, that Netanyahu has taken. Um, but that that Americans who think that getting rid of Netanyahu is going to kind of usher into a, a new happy era of uh, amity between America, the American Jewish community and Israel are, are probably mistaken because they're at this point in time in 2019, Netanyahu is gross in all kinds of ways, but he is just one guy. The broader problem is that Israel in, in, in fundamental ways, is a, an illiberal democracy. It's the democracy that is founded on essentialist notions of blood and identity, rather than, uh, as, as here in the United States, rather than founded on a more universalist notion that all human beings are entitled to a full political voice, to a full cultural voice, and so forth. And and I and I do think that's that's kind of the the tragedy of of Israel when you think about its its evolution. 
uh, obviously the, the reasons behind the Zionist dream of founding a Jewish state, uh, particularly after the Holocaust, are very easy to understand, uh, given deliberate efforts by the Nazis to literally exterminate people for no reason other than they were Jewish. But the Israeli state uh, founded as a, as a safe place for the world's Jews has become an unsafe place for those who aren't Jewish, but who in, in most cases have also lived, had their ancestors live there for many centuries. And, and, and unless that gets resolved and there's no immediate likelihood that it, it will be resolved, um, I don't think things are going to fundamentally change. I mean, what, what is interesting and what will be sort of fascinating to watch uh, in the next few years will be, you know, what role will Arab-Israeli political parties continue to play? Is there any possibility that their role in this election and in, in sort of brokering a resolution will open up more space within Israel for conversations about what it might mean and whether it is possible for Israel to say, you know, Judaism is really vital to our tradition, but at the end of the day, we want to be a country that is, is providing uh, services, goods, rights, uh, and respect for everybody who lives on our borders, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their religion. Um, I'm, I'm not, as, as with most things in life, I'm not particularly optimistic here. Um, but that, that, I think, is the, the bigger question rather than Netanyahu and his future. Well, and I think that's the big question that Israel faces. Does, does it want to be a Jewish state or does it want to be a democracy? Um, and, you know, I guess, Corey, policymakers from both parties going forward, um, if Israel continues what is essentially a rightward tilt, and I think people who think the blue and white party as opposed to the Likud party is going to somehow be um, a big liberal departure are going to be disappointed. Um, you know, it, how much of the U.S. relationship with Israel has to do with the 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 embrace and championing of democracy in that country to the extent that it has existed? Uh, or was that just a fig leaf? And if it disappears, we'll still maintain this close relationship for other reasons? I think that is a question currently being tested. Uh, one of the things I think Israelis uh, and supporters of Israel should be most anxious about is the bet that Netanyahu made on close relations with the Trump administration that uh, can be the start of a very polarizing uh, you know, is, support for Israel has been a bipartisan issue in the United States. And by making it so sharply partisan, uh, I think Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, gave a lot of people, me included, concern that there will be a backlash against Israel. Um, and and by, by aligning itself so tightly with Trump, personally and with Trump's policies. But I think, weirdly enough, President Trump did something great for the state of Israel by as soon as Netanyahu lost, uh, President Trump saying our relations are with Israel, they're not with Netanyahu. That's a terrible betrayal of Bibi Netanyahu by somebody he was trusting, but it's also probably a good thing for the state of Israel. Um, 
Yeah, true enough. Um, well, we shall see also on that front. We've come to the end of the time that we've got for this episode of Deep State Radio. Uh, we will, of course, have our uh, Thursday episode where we tend to deal with uh, more of the legal goings on in the U.S. Congress recently um, with Ryan Goodman and, and several other guests. Uh, so we'll ask you to tune into that uh, to uh, unredacted the podcast, which uh, we have an upcoming conversation um, with former FBI agent uh, Josh Campbell on his um, book, Crossfire Hurricane, um, and um, some interesting one-on-one -on -one episodes. So go to the dsrnetwork.com and uh, see what we got, uh, see what other kinds of content there are, read it, listen to it, uh, click on membership, become a member. It doesn't cost much. It supports everything that we do here. Um, and, uh, and we'll be grateful for that, but you'll probably also be grateful for that because there isn't anything exactly like this out there. Our objective every week on the Deep State Radio is um, not just to invite a bunch of smart people who you've come to sort of regard as friends and close advisors over the years, um, but, but also to provide a level of depth and insight that you're not going to get in conversations and traditional media where the... Uh, the the really, really deep conversations go six minutes long and the rest of them go four minutes long. So um, we, we, we go a little bit deeper and we've got really smart people like Rosa and Corey and Max. Uh, and we uh, encourage you to come back and join us again real soon here at Deep State Radio. Thank you very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.